Number 7 Media Production. Welcome to the Biz Crush podcast series where I interview successful South African entrepreneurs and movers and shakers in order to extract practical advice on succeeding in business and life. I'm your host, Jacques Passant. And remember, if you prefer Afrikaans, check out Clipco's podcast series. Alex McPhail had a fascination with flying from a young age and has been a professional pilot for 21 years. Trained as an Air Force pilot, McPhail spent three years flying formation aerobatic displays for the Silver Falcons. Thereafter, he piloted Airbus and Boeing airliners all over the world for 12 years before being retrenched due to the demise of SAA. McPhail's entrepreneurial instincts took over though, and he now shares insights from more than two decades of professional aviation and as a keynote speaker, and as host of the Alex McPhail podcast series and World Championship Air Race podcast, he has interviewed more than 100 world-class performers from across the globe. Welcome to the show. It's it's so nice to have you. Yes, just a bloody shame. Now we're doing it digitally and you were right in front of me for six months. I uh, know, Jacques. It's awesome to be with you. Thank you. I'm privileged to be having this conversation with you. It's something we have spoken about for so long. And here we are. We finally clicked record. We've had a lot of these conversations already. So let's uh, let's see if we can find more of the gems <laughs> that we've already uncovered before. It's actually, it's it's weird. It's weird. But again, it's, it's typical. It, it, it reminds me of that... Uh, when uh, I lived in Cape Town for for four years before, as you know, before we 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 uh, moved uh, to the UK, and um, in my f- end of my fourth year, one of my mates, or they, he was made redundant, and his girlfriend was my one of my best friends. So he decided, no, he's going to hang out in Cape Town. I was made redundant from Parmalat, so now the two of us are hanging around Cape Town, and then. You know, he calls me up and says, hey, let's go to Clifton. And I'm saying, okay, I've never been to Clifton. This is now, you know, three and a half years in Cape Town. Let's go to Clifton. Next thing, let's go uh, climb Table Mountain. Okay, that's a great idea. Let's go. <laughs> so it's one of the, when, you're right, when it's right in front of you, you, you take it for granted. And I, I, I think we took one another for granted. But uh, anyways. We did. And we'll get into that. And maybe even we can have a, a, an in-person sometime soon as well. But nevertheless, here we are. So let's use the media we have. And really, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be fun. Looking and, forward and, to it. And, 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 and a medium very close to our hearts. But anyway, tell us your story, Alex. Where did it start, the journey to where we're chatting now? Well, lucky for you, I've been writing my story in a book format for the last five years. But the last six months, I've been putting a lot more effort in. I'm at about 150-odd pages of draft. So I think I've created a lot of work for myself. But I have been talk, looking at my childhood and talking through that and, and trying to understand what was the, that shaped me. So let me dig in as, a, as a, a youth in Cape Town. You know, very young age, we lived down in the Glencairn area, which is near Simonstown, Fishhook. And it's a beautiful existence for a childhood. It's got the sea. It's got mountains. It's not too busy. But Cape Town's not too far away. There's an international airport but really the sea and the mountains are the big draw card for me because it's where I kind of get my energy and, and I love them. And, uh, you know, getting through to the high school phase of life, I was very active, sporty. It didn't excel in anything particularly well, but uh, certainly represented provincial on a few different sports and that was fun. And uh, I just enjoyed that lifestyle and, and just keeping busy and active and sweating a lot. So every day was a sports day for me. But um, 
I started looking out for, you know, what am I going to do next and what does life hold in front of me? And, and aviation had something that came across my radar from a small kid. Parents separated when I was about one or two. And my father and stepmother had moved to the UK. And of course, we're going to still keep in touch. So every June, July holiday for a period of over five years, my sister and I would fly to London and spend the, the mid-year holiday with my father and stepmother. What was that? Was, was that a, a, I guess it's a bag of mixed feelings. So on the one hand, obviously, it's always sad uh, not to have the one parent, but the, that adventure of flying to another country. Yes. Well, you, yeah, it's a nice way of putting it, a bag of mixed feelings. Certainly feelings were, you know, if you, if you had some kind of a heart rate monitor on me in that first kind of getting through the airport, saying goodbye to mom, but getting on an airplane and push a button and they bring a Coke and this massive thing getting <laughs> in the air. Such good feelings, such excitement, like next level, as you like to say, next level excitement. Yeah, yeah. But yes, it was obviously that there's things that work out well and there's sacrifices and, you know, not everything is hunky-dory. However, that was something that was a privilege, a big privilege. And it kicked off this travel bug and the excitement and fascination with flying, which started at that age, had many trips. And then in high school, went through the process of figuring out, well, how do I tackle this career? How did you tackle the career? Because <laughs> I mean, it's not because it's not. A, it's like uh, it's not like you know. We all want to be astronauts. I mean, if you want to be a fireman, that's maybe that's feasible. I reckon for for ninety percent. But uh, you know, if you say I want to be a, I want to be a pilot, or uh, it's it's or even for that matter, a fighter pilot. It's not the average Joe. Is not uh, doesn't have the you know. It's not for the average man, unfortunately. Well, the thing about it is. You know, with a little bit of research and asking, there was no one in my family that was in the military. However, it became quite clear through some uh, connections through my parents that uh, they knew somebody who was in the Air Force, that getting training in the Air Force is the best training you're going to get. If you want to be a pilot, get trained in the Air Force. And that's not just in South Africa, that's globally. Pilot training in Air Forces around the world is, you know, it's exceptional. But there's obviously quite a screening process. So that was my first taste of screening and, you know, getting through and, you know, am I good enough? The the fact is, uh, at that time, more than 10,000 people a year applied for pilot training, and usually that took about 25. So very fortunate to be born with the right genetics, just tall enough, not too tall, good enough eyesight, smart enough to get through, but not top of the class, uh, fit enough to be healthy, et cetera, et cetera. So won the mixed lottery of the genetics and applied myself enough in the right places, got through, applied, and um, yeah, I was selected to, to join the Air Force, I had a one-year gap after school, but nevertheless, going to the Air Force was a super exciting phase of my life. So, so two questions. I just want to quickly touch on the, the genetics. So, so, you know, the, those tests, what, what, I mean, you briefly mentioned, but what has is, what is really made those 25 or what the 25 out of 10,000, what makes them stand out? Uh, okay. So, well, firstly, in terms of your aviation medical as a pilot, as an air force pilot you know the, getting a flying license is different to becoming a professional pilot and getting a, a a flying license is different to becoming an air force pilot so for an air force pilot you needed to be eyesight 20 out of 20 uh, or 6 out of 6 depending on your your metric feet or meters um, but not only that it was also a depth perception in your eyesight and also a peripheral vision in your eyesight and then also a reaction time related to depth perception and peripheral vision so your your cognition of what's happening 
it was a, a crazy machine that we had to go through. And there was a, there was a very unfriendly Russian lady. And in fact, I struggled. And, and she was and it wasn't about, a man. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it could have been a man, but she was purported to be a Russian lady. She was, I was 18 doing my selection and she must've been in her late fifties and grumpy or sounded grumpy anyway. And we laughed about this years down the line, but at the time it's very stressful. You put your head in this bowl like um, machine and you have to focus in the middle and at the same time, in the middle, there's a camera and she can see your eyeball while you're focusing on the middle. And she's flashing these random peripheral vision, left, right, left, right, in, out, far. But if, if your eye moves towards the flash, if you get distracted by it, she can see your eyeball moving. And it's not a peripheral vision test anymore. You're actually tracking a light. You needed to, she needed to assess your peripheral vision. So you see, seeing, seeing, the, seeing the flash without looking at it. Yes. Yeah, so you need to look straight at the barrel. And then when the flash happens off to your right, you need to click a button with your right hand. If it's on the right, your left hand is on the left. And you needed to acknowledge that you saw it. So there was a gentleman or a, a boy, I suppose we were boys then, went in front of me and he struggled. Now that already put me on just a little bit level of alert. Like, well, what is it? Why is he struggling? Because seemingly we were the same. And out, and he and she started shouting at him. So I was already a level of anxiety was raised, and I sat down in this bowl, and the same thing happened to me. And I, I couldn't help but look at this thing. And now she she got worked up with him, and got even more worked up with me. And she said, "Do you want to be a pilot or a ballerina?" And she started whacking like, <laughs> the table. <laughs> it was quite scary, very very intimidating. And she basically said, "You're done, and you come back and try again tomorrow." And that was it. Like if if. If I came back tomorrow and I did the same thing, I wouldn't have ever been a pilot. That would have been the end of my journey. But luckily, I did manage to come back and uh, and I did take the opportunity to go first and settle myself down. Anyway, so that's one of the, the tests that you do is this kind of in-depth eyesight test, amongst other things. It's fascinating. I, I, I remember, I think it was 11 years old when those, those famous uh, nurses visited the school back in the old days, right? And um, I, I'm colorblind, but not ridiculously colorblind. And they said, uh, I remember testing, and they, you know, have to look, try and find this, 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 these numbers and the little bubbles. And uh, I couldn't see it. And they said, "Listen, uh, my man, uh, got bad news. You can't be a, a, a pilot, a uh, pharmacist, or an electrician." But anyway, so that that was that. Um, You've had a taste of it then too. <laughs> and that happens to a lot of people, you know, and it's, again, it's a genetic lottery. Why were you born with a bit of color impairment and I wasn't? Well, that's not a debate that we can solve very easily, but it, it is the way it was. And I was lucky. The, the, I, I want to touch on the training, right? And uh, just as a side note, and I know you and I, we've, we've, we, we, we love our side notes. Um, it sounds to me like a Formula One driver uh, that needs, or the best of the best uh, would have similar skills to a fighter pilot. Yeah, it's interesting. There are attributes that are very similar, and we'll get to this with the, the podcast later on and, and chatting to other people. But it is something that I noticed. And firstly, it's the selection process, which goes with a sort of healthy body, healthy mind, with enough aptitude, enough fitness, et cetera. And then you're in this pool of people that are all super capable. So at some point, there's going to be a, a, um, a group that, you know, from the 10,000, you might get down to sort of 70 or 80. And that that choice of taking the 25 out of that 70 or 80, that's not an easy decision. And I, and I, you know, I don't envy the people that had to make those calls. But again, I was lucky to have said the right things at the right time, looked in the right direction and smiled just enough, but not too cocky to be selected in that pool. Mm. But when you then end up in the flying school environment with your 25 friends, your new friends and your new lifestyle, you know, you're pretty much 
you all have a similar kind of aptitude and it's up to you to, to shine and, and to, to, to dig in because they've selected you knowing that you can pass and it's up to you to either pass or fail. Mm-hmm. So a trick question. You, you mentioned an interesting thing that, you know, the best pilots uh, started uh, in the Air Force. Uh, and again, it sounds like a global phenomena. Why is it then that commercial uh, um, training or flight training, why is it not, why are they not working closer with, with the Air Force? What, why, why is the, the military better? Okay. Well, it's interesting because if you go back to the World War II, there was a massive demand and growth in number of pilots that were out there. Before that, there were pilots from World War I, but flying was only just starting in the mail runs. And, and you know, flying existence was very low and limited. But that with, the, with World War II, you know, all the countries were upskilling. Pilots would get put on a training course that could be a week long and sent to war. There was people being sent to fly their first combat missions and Spitfires with five hours of training. Oh, now, my goodness. I, I didn't even go solo with five hours. I think I had about 17 hours before they even let me go solo for the first time. So you can just understand the demand. You know, the, yeah. the average time of a pilot going to war was so little. Sure. So at the end of the war, naturally, there was a lot of pilots. And with the war ending, people, some people never, ever flew again. They flew, like they'd spent four or five years in the war flying, and their war was over, they jumped out of the Spitfire, they never got into a plane again, and justifiably so. It's something mm. I've, I've chewed on a lot recently. But also, some people didn't want to be in the war setting, but now love flying, and they wanted to, to, to continue it. So there was a big growth with the, with the availability of pilots. Just about everybody was military trained. When I say Air Force, I, I mean Navy as well. There's Navy schools as well, just as good, yes. and, and I, don't, I don't differentiate between those two, although some people might. Yeah, yeah. But there was, a, there, was a, there was a dearth of pilots available, at the same time, the growth of the civilian aviation kicked off. You know, it's a, it's a chicken and egg scenario. Which came first? Well, there were a lot of pilots, but they were also growing the route. So then there was more pilots, so there was more route. So, so this thing really grew and grew. And, and you can picture in the late 40s and the mid 50s, that kind of window, just about everybody was military. And the guys who were coming in knew then were flying with guys that had been flying and they were old war dogs and, and everything was military. So the 50s and 60s, like the golden age of air transport flying, the captain was this guy who was a seasoned war veteran. And when he said something, you sat up straight and answered and did what you told it, or you sat down and shut up and you, you don't fiddle, you don't question. But obviously there's a drawback to that. And the drawback came in that this authoritarian dictator style running of a cockpit is not very safe for longevity of air transport flying. And they had to change things. Now there was a mixing and there was more civilian people. The war had, had ended and the militaries weren't training as many pilots, but there was a demand because of this growth of air travel. So it had to come from somewhere. And slowly but surely, the, the ratio of pilots coming from military into the airlines started getting smaller and smaller. And then, you know, fast forward another 10, 20, 30 years, people started spending less money on military. And just in general, your GDP gets smaller. And if you look today, militaries don't train nearly as many pilots as they used to. Although they are training new pilots, there's nothing like the numbers they were. And so where are the pilots coming from? They're coming from all sources. But military pilots are still sought after. They still, you know, they get a good opportunity because they know the training is good. However, practically, there aren't as many numbers out there in the market as there used to be. So percentage-wise, they are, you know, there's less and less. But I, but I, I'm, I'm, you know, speaking as a novice, complete novice, I, I'm assuming if you can fly a fighter jet, and from there it's like driving a Formula One car, 
and then getting into your your Mazda three two three afterwards. It's it's um, I reckon you're going to have some sufficient control over that three two three in comparison with a Formula One car. Would that be a fair? Well, it's an extreme comparison, but uh, I mean, is is that why uh, you know you guys are so so good? Well, I mean, that, that, it's a fair analogy. I hear what you're saying, and you know, some some part of me agrees with it too, because you have this highly advanced piece of equipment that you need to operate. You know, the extreme of its operations, doing tactical things, and you don't necessarily have the same requirement of functional workload on your own, delivering weapons, etc., in an airline. However, let's not let's not write off an airline pilot. There's a very, very sophisticated operation in the airlines too. And the skills are a little bit different. And certainly a lot of the skills carry over, but the, let's not knock a guy who was trained at a flight school, civilian flight school, and he went and trained in, you know, some kind of humanitarian relief, whether it's helping out in war zones or in drought relief areas, that kind of contract lifestyle teaches you a different set of skills. But when you get to an airline, the airlines have a well-oiled machine with pilot training. They've got very sophisticated training devices, the simulators. It's very realistic. You can spend a couple of weeks flying the simulator. And the first time you actually fly a real airplane, you've got 300 passengers on board. That happened to me. That's how our airlines operate because the training engine is there. It's a well-proven yes, sufficient. track record. Yeah, it works. So no, the airlines the airlines have a, a great training environment and uh, and it does work and certainly there was a contribution from the military over the years but you don't need to be a military pilot to be a, a good airline pilot it actually just uh, reminds me of that movie scully uh with with where i mean he was an ex uh, fighter pilot if, I, if i'm not mistaken mm, yes yeah that was a good movie i like that story How's that? so Okay, but didn't stop there. I mean, so let's talk uh, silver. Is it is it silver falcons? Is is there an English word? I don't know if it was only silver falca back in the day. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting you mention it again. It's a story that I've been developing too. Silver falcons was chosen because back in the day, nineteen sixty six, they got these new aircraft. They were silver. There was a display team in the air force already called the Bumbling Bees. The new aircraft arrived. That's not they sexy. Were That's not sexy. No, not so sexy. <laughs> and they wanted to choose a nice name, which A, sounded sexier, and B, could be said in English and Afrikaans, and it sounded similar. So Silver Falcons is English, Silver Falco is Afrikaans, and they, they're close enough, and the airplane happened to be silver. So, yes, that's the name. So how did you, how do you get involved with that? All right. Well, again, the Silver Falcons is one of the older teams. It's been around a long time in the 60s, and it comes from a lineage before then. But the team Silver Falcon, it was traditionally at the flying school. So when you are a qualified pilot in the Air Force, at some point you'll get sent back as a flying instructor, and you have to train the next generation of pilots after some time there and with suitable qualification as an instructor. At that point, it was on the same aircraft, the Impala, the Air Maki. It's an Italian MB-326, lovely aircraft, little fight, lead-in fighter trainer, little jet aircraft. You would then be eligible to say, put your hand up. We need another display pilot. Somebody's leaving. Uh, you will go in an interview process and a fly-off. And if you're good enough and they like you, uh, more about the good enough in a minute. But if they like you, you will then, you know, you'll be selected and you'll join the airshow circuit. And then the training programs begin. But on the, the are you good enough question, this goes back to the beginning. I had a fascinating conversation with a Blue Angels pilot last week. And, um, you know, the, the training machine, as we discussed a second ago with the airlines, the military training machine is perhaps even more sophisticated in some respects because it's got a longer lineage and uh, it takes a long time. I mean, look, let's just use my example. In Standard 9, in Grade 11, I applied and it was effectively three years later, I joined the Air Force. And by the time 
I was eligible to be a Silver Falcon. I was then in my sixth year or seventh year in the Air Force. So 10 years after the first application being screened in a pool of 25 out of 10,000, I then get put into another pool of, uh, again, there was maybe 15 or 25 in flying instructors, all qualified and suitable. But now you have to be, uh, you know, prove yourself in the aircraft. Can you fly in formation in aerobatics? So this is top, top gun stuff, right? The best of the best. Exactly. But but what was it that that enabled that? It wasn't me. It wasn't Alex that was... You know, all of a sudden I pulled a party trick out my pocket and there I am, uh, I'm applying for Silver Falcons. It was the process of applying at the right age, going through the screening tools, getting through the training program, you know, uh, lining up on instructor's courts, being taught how to fly as an instructor, giving back that knowledge to student, making myself eligible at the right time with the right set of skills. And obviously the bit of humility to say, well, I'm here to learn, you teach me. And if you think I'm good enough and I can add value to your organization, in this case, it was the Silver Falcons, then I'm all ears. So it was a machine that was built around and I happened to be a person that went through the motions. And yeah, again, fortunate, good timing. I, I was selected and, and, and you know spent three years with a team and flying air shows around the country. It was a beautiful thing. You, you mentioned uh, they like you. I mean, is is the, the I want to ask a like you question. So, is is this about again teamwork? You know, just because I mean that's I would say the pinnacle of teamwork. Because you talk about centimeters, something goes wrong, the communication, people die. Um, it's as simple as that. Yeah. So, okay, the like you aspect. By now, this is probably the fourth time I'm maybe starting to sound like a, a, a repeating myself a little bit. When you get to a point of Alex applying for the role as a Silver Falcon. I was screened one of 10,000, brought down to one of 25. I had then qualified in the course. And then of, the, of my pilot's course of 25, possibly 10 of us became flying instructors. Of the 10 of us, three of us ended up becoming Silver Falcons. So you can see that the ratios get kind of thinner and thinner. Not everyone does X. And that doesn't mean because you did X, you get to do Y. And that's for various reasons. Maybe some people are just not interested in being a flying instructor. But nevertheless, there's the, there's the continuous sort of gradation of uh, upskilling yourself and making yourself available to you know, further development, further opportunities. And then also sticking your hand up and saying, hey, I'm keen and I think I can add value to your team. And what do you think? Would you give me a chance? Mm. So what do you do when after eight years of screening a bunch of people, 10 Oaks arrive? You can understand right away, Jacques, that when these 10 oaks arrive, how do you differentiate between the 10 oaks that all meet the criteria? They're all good enough. They're all smart enough. They all say the right thing. How do you choose the one out of the 10? And that's not an easy thing. Again, I had a bit of experience with that because we did choose in, while I was in the team. I, I was part of the, the panel that chose two. One was my direct replacement and one was another person. And, and I had an input there. It's not easy because, you know, you're opening a huge, huge door and opportunity for one person, but at the same time, you're shutting the door on another. Now, I sleep easy at, at night with the fact and the knowledge that the person I close the door on can go home, he can dig deep, and if he really wants it or she really wants it, they can figure out what it was that they could try and work on and improve and give it another go. And if they don't, and if that first hurdle was enough to put them off, well, then, you know, maybe it wasn't for them. But the person that did get it, they have the opportunity now to learn and grow and develop and, you know, then the career takes off from there. Got it. 
So you, you, you mentioned something there. I just want to quickly touch on that and then we can move on to, to the next step in, in, in your career. Uh, you mentioned she. Now, the I know the, the controversy, and I mean, obviously, you know, I love my Formula One. And there's, again, a lot of controversy around, you know, women in, 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 in motorsport and so on. But in particular, Formula One, where, uh, I mean, and I think... The, some of the American, um, the IndyCar, I think you've got a, a Dana Fitzpatrick, you know, she's a mo- multiple champ. But the, the G-forces in a Formula One car, it's just the, the, the female body is not built for it. What, what's the situation with, you know, female fighter pilots? It's, it's, and again, it sounds always controversial. Oh, what do you mean a woman can't do it? But I guess there's a physicality to it that, that uh, the woman uh, or the female body cannot deal with. Or is, am I wrong? Yeah, I had a, again in the last week. I've had a wonderful conversation. I told you about the Blue Angels person. I spoke to a Thunderbirds. It's the United States Air Force display team. It's called the Thunderbirds. That's and, cool. Uh, you know, and Michelle w- was one of the early. She was, I think, the fifth ever display team pilot. But before that, she spent ten years flying F 16s in operational tours, pulling ten Gs. Good so effort. absolutely, the girls can can uh, can you know dominate in this, and there's no reason why that they cannot. Their bodies can't withstand G's at all. I mean, they, we my course we had uh, two ladies, and my sister's a pilot as well. There's no reason that the the female body can't tolerate what a male body can. So it's, it's uh, I want to say it's a bit of a, a, a scapegoat uh, debate. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, and I won't want to dig into the the Formula One side of things, but certainly from the military and the Air Force training point of view. They've done a lot of effort in the last probably 20 years to try and just change the legacy of the past and allow opportunities for women. But let's also go back to, to the base, I think. Uh, again, I'll stand corrected here and I'm happily, I'll happily eat my words here. But the number of applications from females is not as high as from males. Now, maybe we start, that, we start this gender debate from two and not 18 when you're applying, and, and maybe they weren't inculcated from a young enough age. But be that as it may, there was a period where they were actually taking as many as they could, but practically the numbers weren't sufficient enough to, to make the courses kind of 50-50 because there just wasn't as much interest. But certainly, you know, going through the process, the, the selection and the training, and at the end, they've got this product, an Air Force pilot. Absolutely, you know, they can hold their ground. Fantastic. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I didn't realize that. Um, so is, is it a default setting? If you were a fighter pilot, you become a commercial pilot, or is that, is that not a given? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's not a, not a given. And um Okay, so in the Air Force, again, you go through the opportunities. Once you've got your wings, are you going to become a fighter pilot, a transport pilot, or a helicopter pilot? And now they're very different roles. I, I chose to become a fighter pilot. There were, if the, the fighter line had a lot of constraints on the go, and only the best of the best of the best really get in. So from my course, only two people went. Later, another went, but uh, only two went, and I wasn't in that, that pool. I was, maybe I would have been the third or the fourth or the fifth, but I didn't get to go become a fighter pilot. I was a transport pilot, but later on flew the formation, you know, in the Silver Falcons, the formation display, which has a lot of aerobatic maneuvers, which are designed around air combat maneuvering. So I satisfied my itch knowing that I'd done some nice kind of nice flying. It was really very, yeah. very much privilege and satisfaction. But fighter pilots, I mean, that's a, that's a special breed because if you go and look at what it takes to become a a qualified military pilot. You get your wings. Now you go out to a squadron or the further finishing school, whether it's fighters or helicopters, and you go through that next training course. A fighter pilot never really ends their journey. 
Whereas a transport pilot might then end up at transport school, fly a lighter aircraft, then a heavier aircraft, then a heavier aircraft. And then they may or may not become an instructor and then they'll fly a bigger aircraft. And But a fighter pilot is training, 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 next course, training, 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 next course. Just continuous development. Yes. And, and, they, and, and, and it's necessary because they're operating a platform. So when I get into my aircraft, my job is to fly from A to B in the transport line and, and I do it safely with my cargo or with my passengers or with my crew. A fighter pilot takes this multi-million dollar platform and moves it into the air, but getting it in the air and moving it about the air is secondary to the job of actually why it's in the air in the first place. It's a war machine, and I've got to plan tactics and strategy. I've got to react to things that are happening. There's things going on that flying is like putting your shoes on. We're actually doing mountain climbing now with those shoes on, whereas for a, you know, a transport pilot, flying is the thing. Mm. I'm, I'm being a little bit kind of uh, negative around it, but I really want to highlight the point that a fighter pilot needs to continually work and develop themselves. And then when it comes to, to leaving the Air Force, maybe they're finished. So because of that work ethic, they don't easily want to leave because there's always the next course, the next qualification, the next aircraft, become an instructor and then teach the next course and become. So the, there's that work ethic involved that that keeps them in the system longer. And they, you know, if you've flown fighter aircraft 15 or 20 years you don't easily transition because, well, you know, as I explained, it's a sophisticated operation to just fly an airplane from A to B isn't as appealing anymore. I understand. It's just an anti-climax. Yeah, it could be viewed that way, sure. So in your case, you, when, when did the, the commercial bug bite or how did your journey start? Okay, so as I told you, when I was a small, I had the chance to travel to the UK. So it started when I was six and it never really left me. And the idea was that, I'm going to go to the Air Force. I'm going to get the best training in the world. I'm going to love my career there, have a lot of fun. I might fly fighter aircraft. I might not. But at some point, I'll probably be be an airline pilot. So that was always the goal that I'll get to the airlines at some point. And, you know, halfway through the journey of being an Air Force pilot, I started doing my commercial exams. And by the time I finished, I was ready for, you know, my licenses were all up to date. And I had some interviews. And I was fortunate again to get a job with South African Airways, transitioned straight out of the Air Force into South African Airways, and uh, yeah, put on a different uniform and continue the flying. Again, a privilege. It's a wonderful, wonderful airline. You know, the time that I was there, 12 years, it was a beautiful thing. We flew all over the world and wonderful crew, great flight operations set up. It's, it's a pity to see the demise of it now. And it's, you know, a lot of people have been affected by it. But certainly in my time there, I think back very fondly and I'll do it all over again. And it's it's not a. Uh, I take it as as a is a. Uh, I'm going back to my in the beginning of our chat about in my fourth year in Cape Town, uh, deciding to, to to climb Table Mountain, and it you know because it's there. I never bothered to do it. Does it do you become a bit complacent flying to different countries, uh, or do you have that opportunity to stop over explore it? Where oh, I'm flying to flying to New York again. You know, I can't be bothered really. Yeah, that definitely kicks in, that the complacency kicks in. There's something in me, and I'm not sure what it is, that really uh, tries hard to fight that urgency of complacency, particularly about travel. And I can remember a, a distinct phase of where I would, you know, you know times were tough. I had lots of, well, lots, I had a few young kids and those costs were going, I had lots of costs because of young kids. And I conserve as much cash as possible. So I try not to live a lavish lifestyle while being abroad. And I went through a phase of a few weeks where, I, you know, I, not that I wouldn't leave the hotel room, but I, I wouldn't adventure around too much. And I just had this realization one day that, hang on, 
this can all end. And do you really want to go through life having been to London twice a month for a year and not done anything? Yeah. And I, and I, and it was like a light switch went on, and I just you know was it from then on. It wasn't that I had then lived a lavish lifestyle, but certainly I would always go for a run around Hyde Park. I, I saw lots of plays at the West End in London. I saw plays in in New York City. I went to New York a lot as well. I went to Mainz in, in you know, Frankfurt a lot in Germany, and I really enjoyed my destinations. Sometimes it was that I would get on a train and catch the the train down to the Alps and go snowboarding, and that might cost me, you know, fifty or sixty euros for the day. But it was worth it because I knew that this could be it. Maybe I yeah, don't fly yeah. here again. So got to the point with business rescue where at the I knew when I flew to Sao Paulo that that was my last flight to Sao Paulo. Something in me said, "This is it. This is your last flight here." And I could just sit there and just appreciate the city and take it all in, knowing that well, I might not be back here for a while. So, but at least, at least you took it in. Yeah. I took it. Yeah. So and yeah, so we most of us uh, we know the story of SAA. Unfortunately, I mean, you know, and I spoke uh, earlier. We mentioned that that uh, Com Air uh, is is now going through the same process, but I, I, I hopefully a little bit different and better, or less less crap, shall we say? Um, so what? So did you have a plan B? Um, okay, you know, Sao Paulo. You 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 felt that something you know is is there's a shift coming. Were you ready for the shift? No, I wasn't. In fact, I was particularly not ready for the shift. What I was planning, and it's be, you know, I had I had uh, experienced a lot of joy in my professional career as an airline pilot. One of the most amazing things is that you get to share that same travel bug with your kids, and SAA was wonderful in that respect. Most big airlines have the same opportunity where you can share this. You can go on on flights a lot lot cheaper. Sometimes free tickets. And I got to take my eldest son with me on two occasions. I was the pilot and he flew with me and no one else you know, and from the family went. So it was like a real dad and, and son experience, which that's, was that's amazing. So cool. yeah. And I was gearing up for the second kid. He was kind of coming of age and old enough to do that as well. And it all came to a crashing stop just before I was able to do that with my second boy. And now it's, it's still a bit of a, a sad thought for me. However, I was transitioning to a period where... There was a lot of uh, difficulty being an airline pilot too. And by that stage, I had three kids and I was really enjoying the speaking. And I started getting involved in public speaking. I, was, I had a nice presence on LinkedIn by then and people were reaching out to me. I was sharing the story of high-performance teams and what South African Airways does and what we were doing right now and make a little video. And so people were engaging. And I saw that as an opportunity to start public speaking. And that was a nice opportunity to make some money outside the airline and together with the airline, I could have used the tickets to get to wherever it was in Europe or America and attend a, a conference, give a talk and get back. And so this was my plan B in, in some respects. What, get involved what, in public speaking, make a career out of it. What was the instigator? What gave you the thought, hey, public speaking is a, is a thing and an option? What, where did it start? Well, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with um, John Vlismus on one of my episodes I interviewed okay, him. the comedian. And, the comedian, yeah, internationally celebrated comedian, twenty-year veteran of of comedy, and he was saying like he's well, he, he his career transitioned from comedy into now he's a he's a lecturer and he's involved at the Henley Business School, he's done an MBA and he's involved in training, so he's used his skill of comedy to end up in the classroom and teach, and I went the other way, like I went from uh, from teaching to end up in this career where I ended up on the stage, and I, and I had a bit of a moment there with him thinking about that. I've always loved being on the stage. I had these ambitions and, and secret desires of, of being a, the not quite the class clown, but like at the school concert <laughs> where I could 
I could be on stage and be celebrated. I just wanted to be celebrated on stage under the lights. And so that was always an appeal there. Together with that, I had been writing regular posts on LinkedIn specifically. So I was developing my bit of a writing skill, but also trying to share the thoughts of what it is that I'm experiencing now and related as this is what a crew environment does in, you know, in high-risk domains and sharing it in a layman's terms with someone who might be interested who doesn't know much about either flying or high risk. Well, and I think most people are always interested because it's it's fascinating and it's just it's so different and 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 specialized and, and impressive. Well yeah that's what I thought that there was there was there was enough of good feedback for me to realize okay let me let me lean in this a bit more. Mm. But together with that I was also I was teaching. I was a flying instructor. I taught people how to fly at South African Airways. I was a, a teacher there too. I taught and non-technical skills at that that time, where it was you know interaction of discipline, communication, workload management. So that was that was part of the job, and now it was just a matter of taking it outside. Yeah. So now what I was doing at the time was I was using my classroom there between twelve and twenty people in the classroom. I was using that to practice my delivery oh. more than deliver the good content. So I wasn't the expert in the leadership. I wasn't the expert in the workload management. These were all the, the content and subject matters. But I was trying to uh, to develop my own skills of making sure the classroom environment is good, making sure my delivery of the message is good, and uh, you know making the people comfortable, making it that at the end of the day when three o'clock came, it's, somebody would stand up and say thank you, shake my hand, and say thank you, I enjoyed that, and uh, and that was important for me to deliver a good, rounded message that you know in in a way theatre, and mm. so I enjoyed that, and now this feedback from LinkedIn came that people want to hear more of it. So it was a it was it seemed like a logical step for me to go well I've done the classroom I know how to manage that I'm creating the content I know how to manage that people want it let me deliver this content in the classroom which is then the corporate environment and then I had a gig and I had 100 people in the auditorium for momentum and it went well and I loved it So let's let's talk about LinkedIn let's let's uh, how when did you figure out I mean because you've got a incredible uh, following and how did, where did you realize, listen, this, this in itself is the stage to start with? And how do I grow that, that, that virtual auditorium? Time for a did you know insert. LinkedIn currently has 750 million members with over 55 million registered companies. Up to 40% of users access it daily with over 1 billion interactions every month. LinkedIn is used sparingly though, meaning one has only a few minutes to make an impact. Users only spend about 17 minutes per month on LinkedIn. Their services are something for which users are willing to pay, with 38% of users paying for LinkedIn Premium. LinkedIn is 277% more effective at generating leads than Facebook or Twitter. It drives 46% of social traffic to B2B sites, with 98% of content marketers preferring LinkedIn for B2B marketing and lead generation. Yeah, it's a, there's a bit of a deeper story, which I'll try not to go too deep on. But I started with, I developed a charity app many, many years ago. I'd been on LinkedIn for, by now I've been on LinkedIn about 11 years. I developed a charity app and I was specifically trying to find connections that weren't pilots because, you know, I've got your phone number anyway. I don't need you on LinkedIn. Let me just, let me make new connections that can yeah. be fruitful. So I, I avoided pilots and I went for, for corporate social responsibility type people on the platform. 
And I used this methodology of, uh, you know, three to one, give, 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 ask, give, 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 ask. And I was trying to get people's awareness of this charity app that I'd built. Well, I put a lot of effort into that, both the charity app, finding a, a corporate customer with it, and also just getting awareness of it. But then after a, a few months of this effort, one day, I put a flying photo on with a similar kind of worded message, obviously not the same content, but a, a similar structure. And my charity app would, my charity post would receive something like, I don't know, whatever, 150 views. And this flying thing would receive a thousand views. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was an anomaly. So then I'd go, charity, 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 flying. So what I was trying to do was pull people across from flying into see my charity stuff. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought the algorithm would tie the two together and people would dig through my profile. But it didn't. And I did this a few for a few weeks. And then eventually I realized, hang on, people aren't interested in this charity stuff, but they are interested in this flying stuff. So mm -hmm. let me explore that a little bit. So anyway, then you fast forward a while and the, the charity I parked that. But it got to a point where I started making little videos where I would sit in the cockpit flying across to Sao Paulo. It's 38,000 feet over the ocean. And I just make a little two-minute video. Hi, I'm Alex. And this is what we're doing right now. I'll tell you what the weather is happening. These are the kind of things we're thinking of. And People loved it. Just a fly, fly on the wall. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It was. In fact, I used to open it. I'm. I want to give you another behind the scenes insight. And that was. It became a bit of like the behind the scenes, and then I would show the landing gear, and you know, like uh, like Leonardo da Vinci says that if you walk, once you've tasted flight, you're always going to walk around with your head turned toward the sky. So <laughs> that people are fascinated by flying. It's not not hard to capture people's attention. So as long as they had a good little photo or a little video clip people would engage. And that really where it kicked off. Now, uh, again, I don't want to, uh, uh, um, you can tell us the story, but at that stage that you go, I mean, and, and, and I'm just asking because this is how my brain works. I sometimes, I don't like being second or third, you know, in, in when, when you start something or uh, I remember when I, and I think I've told you this story when, when I famously said, uh, when I start my business, uh, going back 2008, I said, I will not get involved in a highly commoditized, highly competitive uh, industry. And I ended up starting a commercial cleaning business. So, uh, <laughs> and then, and then to realize there are a thousand others, right? So for me, it was, I don't want to, I want to be one of three and I want to be the, the first one in. Uh, so did you go out and say, listen, but surely I'm not the only guy. I mean, did you start benchmarking, checking out what's out there, um, or, or, or wasn't it your brain didn't work like that? Just I'm going to uh, just crack on and do my thing. My brain does work a bit like that. To be honest, Jacques, I don't know. Uh, I, I think my ego was so fueled in its own <laughs> thoughts that I didn't even think about other people. I was just thinking about me here. Now, I'll be honest, I, I was just so interested in, in was this post that I was putting out there, can I make it better? So in a sense, I was trying to perfect what I did. I would often in the beginning have an edit of the post. I'd write something and then I didn't like the, the phrase in that post. It started to get a thousand views, 5,000 views, 10,000. Ah, oh, shit. And then I put the wrong, the wrong way of, and then I would edit it. And then it became a challenge for me. Can I put a post out that does well and I don't edit it? So, uh -huh. so really, I kind of just looked at my own thing and I thought, can I make it nicer? Can I make it better? Can just I attract the new gate. audience? Just up the gate. Yeah. And I wasn't really looking around. You know, and subconsciously, that's what high performance teams do. They try and fix their own game. But that wasn't really, it wasn't a strategy to do that. It was literally, I was so focused on my own thing. Maybe self-absorbed, selfish comes to mind. 
That's true. I was, I was so self-absorbed. There could have been people doing great things on LinkedIn and I didn't see them because I was looking at my own stuff. <laughs> but, but it's a bit of a cash too, because on the one hand, I agree with you that, and, and uh, again, I recently got the question, you know, we talk about lifting production uh, in podcasting and my one mate asked me, so are you going to get more money by, by lifting the production stand? And I said, no, I, I'm, ra- I'm raising the barriers to entry. I don't give a crap. I just going to continue raising this wall um, just because that's, I want to, I want to be excellent. And I, and that's what I hear. There's this excellence, but at the same time, it can be demotivating looking at someone else. And, and now you, 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 in that comparison trap, right. And again, mm. South Africa is not America is not Europe. Right. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, I guess it's, it's finding that balance that you're not demotivated by the, the superhero over there or the, the Joe Rogers of the world, but at the same time, you, you've got you've got a little mini Joe Rogan thing going on in your own market. Well, that's it. And I know I'll flip the mic a little bit on you too here. So, was I um, was I looking around at the time? No, I wasn't. Did I want to make a better game? Yes, absolutely. I wanted to make this better. Uh, did I know why I wanted to make it better? Not really. But you summarized it nicely that I want to up the competition. But so as it went on, and eventually uh, we can fill in the gap as to why it became a podcast. But as I went on and it did become a podcast, then it was a case of, okay, I've gone through this doorway now. Now I need to make it better. How can I make it better? Who can I look at? What can I do? And I still feel like I'm, I'm lagging behind some of my colleagues and friends who are doing wonderful things. But here's the, here's the flipping the mic part. So I remember a few months ago, I came across that, that resource that showed that my podcast within the first year got to within the top 5%, 5% of global podcasts. Yeah, and that's incredible. I and that. I shared it with you. I was super yeah. excited. And there's incredible. you on the other side, quickly looking up. And then you look at me and you think, well, what did he do? And I actually don't know what I did to deserve <laughs> it. I don't really know. But it's not good enough anymore. By the yeah. end of 2022, I want to be in the top 1% of global podcasts. And it's possible. But how do I do it now? Like how do how do you go about doing that, Jacques? Well, it's a it's it's a fascinating question because I, I think look uh, we can we can really get philosophical, Alex. Because on the one hand, if if we're not hundred percent sure how the you know Apple, for example, makes the decisions or, or Spotify from from that standpoint, why? I mean, I'm charting uh, uh, as you know, I've got Clip Coach, which is my my main baby, the the Afrikaans business podcast. And I see how I'm dropping in and out of, of different categories every week. So one day I'm 60th in, in management. Next day I see I've dropped out of business. I didn't even realize I was in business category. And then I'm in the marketing. So I think part of the problem is that, that if, if you, if you, it's almost very difficult to, to measure it. Uh, and if you, as we say, if you can't measure it, you, you cannot manage it. But I reckon it's a combination of it's, it's, it, boils down to reviews and, and, and subscribers, I think. I think so. Again, it's uh, it's almost like um, – and I find it fascinating. And I'll, I'll – I'll, again, don't, again, don't get me started here. But, uh, you know, I love, I love YouTube and I, and I find it fascinating how everybody's obsessed with that click here, subscribe there. It's like you always hear it. Click here. If you like this channel, subscribe. Click the bell for notifications. And it's like this flippin' broken record – and I'm thinking there's a reason for it. We are, we need to be reminded as consumers. And I reckon that's one of the biggest mistakes 
I make and still make that I'm, as a matter of fact, I sat down with a customer of mine where we've involved with one of the podcasts and I said, listen, guys, you've got 60 staff. I think you need to make uh, subscribing to this podcast, a living review and sharing part of their, uh, 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 you know, Christmas bonus at the end of the year. And I say that tongue in the cheek and, I, and, I, and I'm serious at the same time, you know, so... Uh, I'm I, with I, you on that because I had the same thing. I had a I had a team of I mean the, the gap that we that we kind of glossed over here is that in the end through various opportunities I want to zoom into opportunities I had a team of 45 people track with uh, with MTN and I was trying to get likes and subscribes and, and reviews and then one day same thing I thought why don't I just get my staff all to download it and just give me a one liner and what they thought of that episode. And that was like homework now. And okay, not yeah. everyone did it, but but it did work. It was a it was a I agree with you. We do need to be reminded. And at the same time, I don't like this click here, subscribe, ding dong, all those things. I don't really do that too much. But we if you want to be measured and you want to improve, you have to do those things. Yeah. And and, and I'm not saying I think I, and I'm stating the obvious just for you know the listeners out there. I'm not saying go and bribe people to go and review. They they you know, they have to hopefully like what they well actually listen to it. I see I think what bugs me with Spotify, for example, is how easily you can leave a review. And that that on the one hand is positive, but at the same time, you know, if you look at uh, uh, Apple, you have to have an account. So I think that's a barrier to entry. If if you don't have an iPhone user or a or, or an Apple customer, it makes it it's very hard for them to go and, and and leave a review, and they're not going to create an account just especially to leave you a review. So I think there's there's work to be done, but I want to emphasize the fact that maybe Spotify's has got the answer, but that's just too easy in a way, just to 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 you know press that that five star. It feels to me that. With the right Indian team in place, <laughs> you can fabricate it. But uh, but anyway, so but let's let's wait. Where, where did you? And again, I want to. You mentioned MTN. Obviously, I want to. I want to unpack the entrepreneurial journey which followed. But where did you awaken to this wonderful world of podcasting as a listener? And, and as a listener, I need to get involved with this. Yeah, I started listening to podcasts possibly six years ago, maybe seven. And I can recall of my family and friends, I was one of the early adopters in, as a consumer, and it was uh, Freakonomics Radio. I'd love the Whoa, books. Oh, I love Freakonomics, Freakonomics Radio. Radio. Mm, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was beautiful because it was a 30-minute drive to work. I could listen to an episode on the way to work, and I could fly off to London, come home and listen to an episode on the way home. And then slowly but surely, I started listening to it you know, walking around Hyde Park and, and you know, it, it basically started consuming me. I was the consumer and it consumed me and I, w- I, could, I could easily get through an hour or, you know, two hours of content per day. And I started diving in and slowly more of my friends got in there, recommend shows, et cetera. So as a consumer, loved the format because I could go for a run, walk, gym cycle and still get the content in. Then at the same time as now I'd done that auditorium talk with Momentum and it went so well for me, it felt so good. I got a good uh, reception and a good good questions and the feedback was nice. So it really felt like this is something I can do. I would, I approached uh, COVID as most people in the world had some major life changed COVID. I had the two, the dual incomes of being an airline pilot, no one traveling and public speaking, no one gathering. Oh. That was a, a major blow. And I was the only, you know, I was the only person that was getting income and I was a single income family. So it was a major devastation. So I had to try and transition and much to my family's horror, 
instead of using the lockdown to start painting, we bought all this paint and paint trimmer and tape, and we were going to do a bit of DIY around the house for the next three weeks while we were at home because I'd been traveling a lot. Day one of lockdown, I said, sorry, I'm now starting a live YouTube channel. And it was, uh, what? As you do. So I, as, as you do. At two o'clock on the first day of lockdown, I went live on YouTube for the first day. And you can go and see it. It was awful. I was in my uniform. I, I tried to carry on this, um, one of my early videos on YouTube. I tried to carry on the public speaking format. And it was important for me to be live for two reasons. One, if people interacted with me, I wanted to be on my feet answering questions as if I was on stage. And two, I didn't have the time and the bandwidth to be able to spend energy editing because I know that one edit, one hour of filming is eight hours of editing and I, oh. and I couldn't afford that time. So I needed to groove my swing fast and I needed to be able to think of my feet. And from the first day, it was important. So it was going to be every day, Monday to Friday from two o'clock. And then the second week was the same. The third week was the same. And obviously this took a bit of toll and eventually I scaled back to three times a week. But in that lockdown period, I think I did something like 40 episodes and it was hard work, but it oh, really incredible. helped me grow my swing. Yeah, and it was about uh, four episodes in where I realized I can't keep monologuing anymore. I'm running out of content. Mm. And someone suggested, why don't you interview a friend? And that's where I started. I interviewed, I said, okay, well, you're my first guest. So Kevin, you became the first guest and that friend led to the next friend and the next friend. And, and we can get into some specifics of how to get guests. But essentially it was a case of, I wanted to groove my swing. I didn't have time to edit. I went live and I started on day one and it hasn't stopped. Why, why, uh, why not a podcast as a starting point? Is it, is it, why did you feel the, the, the visual component was, was more important at the time? I, I, it was really just a case of it's public speaking. I do it on stage and people would see me on stage. So the logical thing for me, if I can't do it on stage was, well, YouTube is, is it's a, a, stage. a visual it's thing. A digital so stage. It's a stage. Yeah. Okay. A digital stage. Yeah. Really. I didn't think it through. In fact, I'd gone through the whole year without even putting anything on the podcast store and, and played catch up in December that year. And then went back to all the episodes and started throwing three or four a week just to catch up. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a missed opportunity to really start building momentum early. But anyway, I learned and we moved forward. Some of the early ones had bad sound quality, so we didn't use everything. But yeah, it was a, it was a choice based on the visual stage. Sure, interesting. And 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 so the podcast, so that that came from you need a guest, and 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 that is that when the light went on. Yes. I, and I enjoyed it. It was so nice, Jacques. I mean, like these kind of conversations. We've had so many of these. We probably averaged uh, two a week for about six months. But these conversations, because it's a, sometimes it's just, a, you know, having a cup of coffee or a beer with a mate and it's really just talking about mundane things. But oftentimes, particularly like you and I, we had this entrepreneurial spirit that that sparked off ideas and energy off each other. And we found particular areas of value that we could collaborate on or, or unlock thinking that we were stuck mm. on. And it's really good. And in the same way, meeting new people is, I, I joke about it. It's, it's like, a, it's a hobby of mine. I love to meet new people. Uh, it, it energizes me to meet new people. I love the whole, it's like a bit of a dance, you know, you, you, you kind of see the person, you kind of, you know, that you're trying to assess them out and, and assess them and getting to know a little bit about them. And at the same time, the longer format of an hour or so conversation allows you to dig a bit deeper uh, it's more than a phone call. It's more than a chance bumping in at a coffee shop. You get to go a little bit deeper, understand some of the thought processes, and you know, rightly or wrongly, I make assumptions of people based on what I've I've uh, engaged with them about, and and that's just a fun process, learning about their life. And at the same time, I I learn so much because 
they've got a rich life and and I'm curious. I I, I think the the, the last bit uh, I always say I'm 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 the real winner in each episode. Even now I'm I'm the winner. I work away smarter. Uh, then, then I before I press record, and I and I consider it a, a huge privilege. Um, but now, okay, bef- but before you know, you don't have to encourage us much to to to, to get going on podcasts. But you know, so obviously, YouTube channel, podcast, that wasn't enough for you, not enough challenge. So you you thought it's a good idea to start a business uh, or two. <laughs> so tell us what 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 happened there. How the hell did you get to that point where you thought this is a good idea? And by the way, the idea of what you're going to be doing. I mean, because that is, I guess, ninety nine percent of people are are they don't know how to get out of the blocks. Yeah. And that's the point that I also I made a note here a few minutes ago, opportunities. Okay, let's rewind a little bit. And I'd been doing the public speaking in collaboration and I'd continued with the content that I was sharing on LinkedIn and I was making videos and I didn't really have many opportunities left to make new videos because no one was flying. But I did have two flights in that lockdown period where we had to go to China and get some masks. We went and got nearly 5 million masks from China on a big international airliner. And I went on another flight where very sad, I returned the airplane back to the owner. That was one of the, you know, one of the more sad days of my career is that giving this airplane back and it was an older aircraft, very safe and no worry about that. However, we all knew that that was the last time that plane was going to fly because who's going to buy an old airplane now? And and most likely it's going to get chopped up and become scrap metal. So that was a very sad flight. So both of those, in combination with they were poignant flights, they also offered a lot of opportunity to film and make good posts out of because I hadn't flown a lot. So they were really, it was appealing. In a, in a four-month period, I had two flights and I could make some good content for me and for the people following. So that was the kind of start. Through conversation with a neighbor, there was a need. You know, the opportunity was literally knocking on my door. My neighbor was knocking on my door and uh, he was just sharing a frustration he had. And, and, And I think this is the point that people perhaps miss or don't value enough. Maybe they don't miss it, but they don't really know how to get out the blocks. When the market is speaking to you, when your neighbor's knocking on the door and they're sharing a pain point, if you're able to see, obviously, sometimes we get stuck in our own pain points that we can't see the way out because we're so involved in it. But a third, you know, a third party view, a second set of fresh eyes can see it in a different way. There was an opportunity to say, look, you've got all this backlog of wine. How do you get the wine out? And actually, my wife said to, uh, to Gary at the time, listen, Gary, Alex could drive. He's doing nothing. You know, <laughs> I, was, I was making YouTube videos every day. He's doing nothing. Um, so I loaded my little Yaris with uh, 38 cases of wine and a little 1.3 hatchback Yaris. That's about as many cases of wine you can put in there. Uh, I put on my, you know, I dress smart when I go to a presentation or a training. That's just how I do it. I dressed up like that. I put on my reflective jacket, loaded my car, and off I went. And it was humbling, you know, hop was seven in the morning. I got in my car, I drove off there. And an hour after it was dark, I rolled back in at home and I delivered the 38 cases of wine. In fact, I think it was 37 because one was a failed delivery. It was humbling. It was all day on the road. It was long. It was tiring. It was hard work. And at the end of it, I think I'd earned myself just under 300 rand before costs. So it was a whole day's worth of work. There was petrol and wear and tear and uh, getting a sandwich on the way, and not much to show for it in terms of rands per hour's worked. However, 
it was a good reality check. It was a wake up. It was something to do. It was a get off the couch moment and um, another story to share on content. So I shared the story and this thing, it, it really, it resonated with people at the time because around the world, everybody was in a similar boat and there's a whatever career doing this just to help. There's a, a professor of nuclear physics, you know, packing food parcels or helping a nurse or all these kind of out of the place environments. And I was another one of them. There's an airline pilot driving around, dropping off boxes of wine. Sure. And so that story really kind of resonated a lot of people. And people started reaching out through the LinkedIn channel and, you know, some of my mates as well. And they said, hey, uh, can I, I'm also sitting at home. Can I also deliver wine? And, and one thing led to the next. And before I knew it, not only was the opportunity knocking on my door when, when they needed help to deliver wine, now the opportunity was banging down my door saying, I also want this opportunity. And I realized day one, I drove all day. Day two, I drove all day. But by the end of day two, when my inbox had been flooded, I realized, I don't need to drive anymore. I need to harness this opportunity and give work to other people. And within a week, I had 20 employees driving and packing boxes and, and uh, you know, meeting. And I had to just arrange these people. And that was a lot of work and, and, and conversation for another day, how to go about it. However, you know, with proving yourself over a two or three week period, they then said, listen, this is great. You know, these owner drivers is working out nicely. Thanks for that. Uh, can you get another 20 guys in the warehouse? We've got an, we need to sort the wine before it gets out to here so that you can go and deliver the wine. So that's when the, the real opportunity opened up. And that business continues today. It's nearly two years and we still have a team going and we're actually in the process of, of reorganizing it and making it more sophisticated. Uh, keep trucking is going to be hopefully the, the evolution of what was the driver hustle. It was a hustle to get going. And uh, yeah, we continue today. But it was really a case of, when, the, when someone knocks on your door, when the market speaks to you, you have to sit up and pay attention. And I like to say, you just need to start. You'll figure it out as you go. You'll course correct as you go. But if you try and figure it all out before you start in prevention of starting, then you're doomed. You need to go. You need to take the step. You need to crack the egg. You need to start the car. You need to make the phone call. You need to do the delivery and uh, you know, course correct as you go along. Yeah, that's uh, that's very inspirational, and I think there it reminds me of of Henry Ford that that said, you know, you you should never lose momentum. And I think even that that doesn't matter that you have a major job change, you did not lose momentum. The fact that you started a YouTube channel, podcast, or, or delivered wine. That is keeping momentum, and I think in, in, in that in itself is is part of a you know one of the key ingredients for for success. Uh, but sitting on your button and sending out CVs, uh, unfortunately, that that's losing momentum in in, in many ways. That that the, the the I mean, so in a nutshell, give, give me that six sec, six second elevator pitch of 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 the service now, the app, and so that's the first one. The second one. The lessons learned from the charity app, did, 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 did you draw from that? Yeah. Okay. So, so I didn't actually, I just realized now, I didn't quite answer your earlier question completely. However, suffice it to say, in conversation with working with the company, creating work for drivers and warehouse workers, they then a approached me and said, you the guy that does the videos, can't you make us a video? And I suddenly thought, well, here's another opportunity. This is the market now really speaking because... You know, organizing a bunch of warehouse workers, it's great for them. It's great for me, but it's, I need to do something more. So I said, sure. So I made them a video about how we got all these people from all walks of life. I mean, I had aircraft technicians and accountants, HR managers, pilots. 
I had all sorts of uh, different walks of life, sitting at home, wanting to do something, knowing they're not going to earn too much, but they were doing something. And so we made the story of this, made this like two, three minute video. And that's also out there on YouTube, et cetera. It, it ended up being that when somebody watched this, that was also received well. The person that watched that was the, the, the MD of Supersonic, the, the subsidiary of the home fiber division of MTN. <laughs> and he reached out and said, hey, we need to talk about this video. I said, yeah, cool, let's talk. He said, look, I, um, I love the video. It's got a good story to it where you've, uh, you've plugged the gap. And it really was an apology video to say, listen, I know you ordered the wine months ago. I know we sent you the wrong order twice. I know we've said sorry in all sorts of different ways but we really are sorry. And this is how we're fixing the problem. It was that kind of a video. And he said, yeah. I've got the same problem. Everyone wants better, faster internet. We want to help them. And uh, we don't know how to get there, but we don't know how to answer them. We're tired of saying, sorry, can you make us a video? And I thought, hey, this is it. I'm oh. the new video guy. I can do apology videos. <laughs> <laughs> but i got a problem. Where did they get the staff for that uh, you know, that short-term fix. I said, yeah. well, you called the right guy because I got the staff. So let's not make the video yet. Let's make the staff. He says, good, because I want 50 people in a call center. Can you help? Oh, I said, sure, God. I can help. <laughs> Where do we Doesn't start? Anyway, about six weeks later, we started, and I think we started with 25. And in the end, we had about 46 in the call center and doing various roles. So that video kicked it off. But again, it was the market speaking saying, hey, if you pay attention, there's something you can do here. And we all see it. Let, let, I don't want to pretend that I'm special in this thing. You see it. People see it. Mm. But, but the, the, the emphasis for me really is when you see the opportunity, lean into it and just start. Course correct as you go. But back Love to your question. Six, the six-second version of, uh, of the service offering now, that's a conversation for another day. We are, uh, let's, let's pick up a repeat conversation in about June, and I would love to share more. And um, what was the second part that you asked? So uh, the, your, your the charity app, skills, skills from that. Amazing, amazing skills. At the time, I was deflated and, and dejected because it was lockdown. It was my public speakings that were booked were being cancelled and they were asking for the money back. My employer was stopped paying me and put me on unpaid leave. And I was sitting in a very tight position. And at the same time, I was still paying for my Amazon Web Services uh, account, my Apple developer account, and every month a bit of money would go off for this app. And it was, as lockdown hit, end of March 2020, I pulled the plug on the app. It was a sad day. It was one of the most exciting days in my entrepreneurial journey when the app went live on the App Store two years before in the November. It was such a, a wonderful feeling that, hey, I've got an app on the Apple has approved my app. Look, there, there you can go to Apple and you can download my app called GoGiver. It's no longer there. And it was a very sad day to, to pull that plug. It was the right decision. But on reflection, the lessons learned are I had to do a lot of different things. I had to go to a market and I, I went to people like F&B, Investec, Pick and Pay, Woolworths, Mercedes-Benz, Barlow Worlds. I went for these big corporates because I wanted to supply them a service offering that will help them with their corporate social responsibility as it relates to their staff helping out the charities down the road. They had an HR policy in place already that said, you can get half a day or a day off, or we can match your hours. If you help out of that charity down there, it's good for our bottom line, the, the triple bottom line. It's good for you and it's good for the charity. So I was just going to make a sophisticated platform to just accommodate all this and make it an in-house service for them. But it was lovely. People enjoyed the, the proposition. They liked the look and feel of the app and they could see it working. But I was not core business. I'm going to a bank saying, hey, how about sponsoring a charity app? Not core business. Not an easy thing to get through. 
wrong time of the year. Maybe if you came in six months time. So I had a lot of those conversations. So a lot of lessons learned how to get rejected, how to set up <laughs> meetings, how to be a little bit uh, pushy and, and get answers, how to approach people in meetings, uh, how to get people to download your app. Lots of good lessons learned. It wasn't a success there, but it did carry over into what became Driver Hustle and Digital Care and the podcast. So let's let's uh, let's talk podcasting. So fascinating. I mean, this is it's inspirational stuff. Uh, I think the the you know again what I take from it, high tech is the name of the game in the twenty first century. I think that's one thing that's not really negotiable, um, or at least whether it's you know in this case with with uh, driver hustle, it's managing. You know, it's the way you're using technology to manage uh, uh, people. Podcast. So what 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 happened there? Um, obviously, you realize, let's do this. But, I mean, that evolved. It started somewhere and it, and it started evolving. Time for a did you know insert. People simply love podcasts as the most effortless way of absorbing information. Listeners can download episodes and replay it whenever they choose while jogging, driving, working or relaxing. It's a non-intrusive medium. Podcasting reaches out to new audiences through building familiarity and builds up brand authority with people regularly hearing experts talk on a specific subject. Engaging podcasts can provide an additional avenue for generating money. The industry's revenue is predicted to soon pass the 500 million pound mark. Podcasting also facilitates rather subtle branding so listeners will remember you without it coming across as a sales pitch. Yeah, and it really was, as you mentioned earlier, it's the privilege for me to spend the time with some amazing guests. And I, I have had some amazing guests who I never would have thought possible. But I did, five, six years ago, set myself a crazy target. And uh, I'll share it with you. And it's probably unlikely that I'll get there. But it, it is the framework for what I've achieved now. Subsequently, I sat in my garden one day, I can picture it looking into the trees, sitting on the lawn thinking, I want to have lunch with Bob Dylan one day. And maybe I still will, maybe I won't. But the the process to go about getting hold of him, I think I understand now, because I had to do it. Mm. And so what I did was, I, I, I changed from that monologue when I ran out of content, I interviewed a friend, then another friend, and then another friend. And soon it became like a, it was always going to be an aviation show. So it was a pilot show. So I was interviewing pilots. And then you know, well, some people genuinely watched it. And I was very thankful for having those five or eight listeners in the beginning. And it really was good because I got good feedback about the typical things that are the mannerisms that were irritating. But also they started saying out of the blue, hey, you should speak to this guy. And they gave me either a phone number or they left me to it. and. One thing led to the next and my circle grew a little bit wider and then it grew a bit wider. And there was a wonderful breakthrough. And I'll share this story about podcasting specifically. Through a friend, it was recommended that I interview Patrick Davidson. And it's interesting that I talk about this now because I interviewed him again last week, actually in person. And it was a, it was really was a beautiful day together. Patrick Davidson, a Port Elizabeth boy, very big in aviation. And he is a successful businessman as well. His father started a company. He's been involved in aviation since he was knee-high to a grasshopper. He ended up in the Red Bull Air Race Series a few years ago. He was a national aerobatic champ several times over. He's been at World Champs before. He's a super skilled pilot, and he's in the Red Bull Air Race. 
So when somebody suggested, hey, man, your show looks good and why don't you interview Patrick? And I knew Patrick. We'd met a few times on the air show circuit when I was in the display team and he was flying displays too. So I reached out to him and he said, yeah, sure, let's chat. But he was like Kimi Raikkonen, cool, calm, collected, the sort of consummate professional. Iceman. Answers, Iceman. It, it, and, he, and again, he was like that again last week and, he, and he's a wonderful guy. But he's very... Um, He's very, uh, he's, he's professional. Let's just call that. He's yeah, professional yeah. and he's slick. He's tidy. He's a Red Bull athlete. He looks the part and, uh, and you can see why people would, would engage with him, big brands. So I got to interview him. And at the time, the show was still live. Uh, we're still doing live um, YouTube. So it's, it's the stress if you put on your guest to say, hey, can I interview? And by the way, it's live. And I, I, at any time, I could ask him a nasty question and throw him under the bus. Never my intention, but it's a stress that you have to deal with if you have a live show that your guest is also subjected to live. At the end of the show, at the end of the interview, I always uh, say, just hang on a moment. I end the show and I just have a debrief. I always do that. And that's for me to improve the show. I ask them a couple of questions. Typically, how did you experience this? What did you not like? How can I make it better? Mm, And while we were doing that two or three minutes, he said, hey, I just got a message from Willie Cruikshank. I said, okay, well, who's Willie Cruikshank? (laughs) He said he was watching live and he is the big boss of the air race. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's interesting. So I said, uh, okay, well, what's happening at the air race? We talked on it a bit about it on the on the interview, but we couldn't really get into too many details because it was in flux. What had happened was Red Bull sold the product, the air race, to a consortium in, in the Far East, and they were rebranding it with some sponsorship, calling it the World Championship Air Race, WCAR. And Willie was like heading up the team that was going to bring it back as, a, as a, from an operational perspective. So I thought, well, this is interesting. So I said, hey, um, would you mind giving me his phone number? So he did. And I thought, you know what, Spike, well, the iron's hot. I phoned Willie and I said, we had a 20-minute conversation. Now, Willie is a wonderful man. Where's, where's former, he based? Yeah, I was just about to say, he's a former RAF fighter pilot in the UK. He's now based in England. He spent two years on the Red Bull Air Race series, and now he was putting the band back together, as it were. Wow. And we had this great conversation, and right away we clicked. And again, one thing led to the next. And before I knew it, I was becoming the host city agent to bring the air race to South Africa. And we had a venue lineup. We got a three-year deal. So that has been delayed till next year, but it's happening. And then he reached out to me a few months later and he said, you know what? We want to have a podcast for this air race. And I think you're the guy for the job. I said, well, I also think I'm the guy for the job. We started (laughs) the World Championship Air Race, brought out a podcast and I hosted it and I got to interview all the former world champions. And what a privilege. That is incredible. That is incredible. So touching on that, what, what, what stands out? I mean, if you, again, if you have to single out, I mean, it's normally hard with that that caliber of guests, but I would say if you have to single out uh, two or three people or, or a story that, that, Jumps out. Well, of either the podcast or specifically the Air Race podcast. The Air Race podcast. Air Race. Okay. So it was so nice to be associated with it. It was a case of when I was being just me on my podcast, you know, I had a certain level of understanding of my abilities and uh, I I thought I, I could talk a good game. But to be the host of something bigger than you and I would then, you know, represent them interviewing the people that they wanted to hear from. It was such a such a privilege, Jacques. I really, really enjoyed it. And I can remember one of the early conversations I had with Matt Hall, and he is the reigning champion of the – he's the last champion under the Red Bull Air Race. He's the reigning world champion, and uh, and he certainly is fired up to to give it another good go, and he could be the, the world champion again as the, as the race kicks off again this year. Season two of the podcast has started now, and we started recording, so that will be coming out shortly. 
but it was just such a nice conversation. And what was easy for me was that it was a it was a professional conversation between two Air Force pilots. He's a little older and he's obviously supremely accomplished. And I don't consider myself in the same bracket, but we have the same background. And so mm. we could fast forward the understanding and the conversation and we can get into the weeds a little bit. And I think in that kind of conversation, it's a bit like the Will Buxton in Formula One. It's a bit like some of the, the behind the scenes stuff in Formula One. If the person interviewing the guest has a little bit of insight, you can share or you can get into a conversation which allows the listener to, that has a little bit less insight to really see what are the important things. You know, when you're on the outside, you don't always appreciate what the little things are. You might, you know, we all know that those little things that, uh, that make a big difference. And sometimes you just make assumptions. But actually, if you hear two people in the same game talking, you realize, oh, no, hang on, they're talking about something that seemed like a nothing to me, but it's, it's interesting. And of we course. had those kind of conversations, yes. which was fascinating for me. Just content experts, really. I mean, that's, that's an again, or niche. And I can't emphasize that enough, you know, with, with people that, uh, you know, when, when you get it wrong. I always say if your podcast is not at least two or three niche deep, you're wasting your time, you know. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that, just these content experts that can engage the level that average person cannot, or for that matter, journalists cannot. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm also I'm privileged now to have these aviation, very deep, niche aviation conversations where we can go deep for the air race, and it is it, it's wonderful. And I also continue with the Alex MacPhail podcast, and uh, you know this month we celebrated the hundredth episode with an astronaut on the hundredth episode. Oh my! And in fact, it, yeah, and it was the second astronaut that I've had on the on the show. That's so incredible. I'm super privileged to have that. But it's also allowed me the chance, which I'm enjoying, to branch away from specifically aviation focus. And I have probably 30% of my, my guests are, are pilots. And, and I can then go more into entrepreneurial, businessmen, you know, people that are artists, people that are doing different things that allows me to explore and grow my skill set wider. But at the same time, I have an association with the air race that allows me to keep it narrow and focused and tight and we can go really deep. So I'm in a really, really privileged position, and I do recognize it. And 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 uh, before, and congratulations, by the way, on the hundredth episode. I mean, that's a hell of a milestone. The um, so it was it was high performance teams that and and you rebranded. Yes, and that was another tricky one too, uh, and that really speaks to my. Um, I don't know how to put this. I was I was not confident in just going out there as me saying, because I thought, well, what does the world want to hear? I mean, what do I have to say to the world that anybody's going to sit up and listen? So if I put a facade of something that people can associate with, then it's easier. So it's like I put a photo of the Silver Falcons in a formation fly past, and I can say, look here, this is good. This is what I've done. These people are an example of a high-performance team. And in fact, let me call it high-performance teams so that people know what I'm talking about. People can associate it. And therefore, I'm just sharing a message of a high performance team and I'm kind of a mouthpiece rather than this is, you know, this is me, this is Alex. But with time, it, it evolved and I got to about 60 odd episodes, 70 episodes. And I got to a point where I got started getting comfortable in my skin. And I'm, I'm very comfortable in my skin now and I, uh, way more than ever in my life before. And, it, and I realized that actually, I don't need that anymore. I did need it in the beginning. Maybe I didn't actually, but I felt like I needed it, so I did it. And if I typed in high-performance teams on the internet, 20,000 
results come up and I'm not even in the first 100 pages. Rightly so, because who am I? Once again, it's almost like the reverse of, <laughs> that is the reverse of where it all started because if you type in Alex MacPhail now, I think I may come up in the, in the first page or so. Certainly you'll find me now. And if you type high-performance teams, you wouldn't find me. So it was a conscious decision to, to move away from something that was quite generic but also move towards something that was quite specific. And, uh, and I feel a lot more comfortable in myself. And, and, and now I can, I can stand tall and say, look, I've got some value to offer you. And it might not be for you. It might be for somebody else. But I'm happy with what I'm delivering. And by the way, my name is Alex MacPhail. And this is the Alex MacPhail podcast. And if you want to find me, you can find me easily here. So it's, yeah, the rebranding has been a success in my mind. And we've created a new icon and a new look. And uh, slowly but surely, all the all the different channels, the Spotify's, etc. I've you know we've, we've tried our best to to make the transition smooth. Well, it's I must say it's it's and I mean it looks your your branding looks very nice and 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 you you really got me thinking you know because I think you know one of the conversations you and I had if if I look at my podcast and again I've I've got a as you know I've got a, a branding slash business strategy around. My different podcast is, is in, in my mind, it's contingency that I envisage a situation where I create these these channels, sort of these podcast uh, niches and brands where I can fill them eventually with with the content expert. Um, but, um, you know, the, the reality is, and, it, and really I was reflecting on when you had the name change and I started noticing, other than the fact that the biggest bloody podcast in the world is the Joe Rogan experience, and I and I started seeing another guy, uh, uh, Patrick Bed David, which the value chain which I enjoy and follow. He's now uh, um, PBD podcast, Patrick Bed David podcast. You know, he's he's, he's moved away from value So, and I mean, these guys are heavyweights, um, and so you have to to take notice of that. But what's interesting of what you mentioned now, which. Uh, I haven't thought of is the fact that, uh, yeah, there's, there's, I'm not going to say there's only one Jacques Besson because I, I think there's too many in South Africa, right? But the, the point is um, typing in Jacques Besson and finding me, you know, versus, you know, well, you have to know what Clip Coach is for starters or the, the odds of someone typing in my name and finding me is much better than than the other way around so it's 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 really food for thought and i think that's uh you know it's one thing that um i think we you know i'm gonna i'm gonna mentally unpack more and more moving forward but i think there's a lot of merit and and going down that route and especially as you rightly say you're confident in in, in the personal brand and you've you've laid a incredible and reputable foundation well i hope so and i uh, thanks for the kind words jock and but you know let's let's not forget i think is it are you the oldest longest running Afrikaans podcast out there. I mean, there's you've got you have the brand that I'm seeking to get. And okay, so mine has my name in it, and yours doesn't have your name in it. But I'm trying to emulate brands like what you have created. And maybe there's some merit in the fact that you you consider a name change or not. But you've got the, the rich the rich pedigree, and I hadn't yet built it up. And I just took the opportunity to do it. Also, I take full uh, you know, ownership here that this wasn't my decision. I was guided by another branding expert. In fact, one of my guests, Mirko Percarari, is an Italian designer, and uh, he was a, an awesome guest a few weeks back too. You know, he's a branding expert too, and he said, look, he just, he just called it straight. He says, type in high performance team, see where you come up. Type in Alex McPhail, see where you come up. Are we even having this conversation? <laughs> I mean, that, that that really just grabbed my attention. Now, I mean, it's 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 so valid. So, no, you uh, really food for thought. But uh, so, 
2022, uh, I mean, some ex- exciting stuff. What What's happening? Obviously, working, working towards 2023 with the air race. Yes, so continue to work towards 2023 for the air race. Global shipping became a problem and we had to put, uh, we had to put a pause on April this year in Cape Town. Hopefully, this we pick up the conversation, but uh, you know, lots of lots of uh, rivers to cross first. So, continue to drive the the podcast, aiming for top one percent of global podcasts by the end of the year. Putting a few things in place, writing a book right now, and I've been at it for about five years. I'm at about 150 odd pages, so I can uh, I can start the editing process soon. And if I mention it here now, maybe I've got another accountability partner to help me finish it. <laughs> and yeah, strength to strength on the sort of tech front and building the labor business that uh, that is keep trucking. So that's going to be a bit of um, you know, work going in there. But recently moved down to the coast in the Eastern Cape and it's a beautiful spot. It's taken advantage of, of nice nature, the beach, rivers, et cetera. A wholesome lifestyle for kids and uh, yeah, enjoying it, enjoying in a smaller community and a slower pace of life in a beautiful environment and being involved with, you know, running on the beach and playing with the dog and, and swimming and surfing. Yeah, not not for forgetting to to live and um, just being in the moment. I'm, I'm obviously I was very sad. I'm, I'm glad for you guys. I mean, we uh, the Bassons are also a bit of nomads. We we dangerous in that way. So for us, you know, we we recently in February we were back. Uh, you know, for our fourth anniversary back in South Africa. Um, it says a lot that I think you 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 maintained the balance, and I just want to say well done. And but you missed you missed you at Boma, man. <laughs> I'll definitely make an appearance, and hopefully before the end of the month too. And uh, we can do maybe we should do a round two in person as well over a lack of cup of coffee that you guys make there. Uh, Alex, it's been a tremendous chat, and uh, as always, I'm glad we press record this time around, and uh, I look I look forward to seeing you soon. It'll be great. Thanks, Jacques. Thanks for your time and uh, the insightful questions too. I enjoyed this. Only a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review and follow us on social media at bizbizcrush.com.